Father John Arnold, and this is Oro Valley Catholic. You know, in our Liturgy of the Word on all of our Masses, the first reading and the Gospel generally have some common theme that the Church is trying to direct our attention to. Uh, the second reading, which is generally from the letters of Paul, really can pretty much stand on their own. But the first reading today, I think the connection is pretty obvious to the gospel. It's from the book of Job. And scripture scholars argue about when Job was written. But what it has to say is very clear. Here's Job, a righteous man. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, in the book of Job, God permits it. God permits Satan to come down and destroy his family life, his daughters, his sons, run off his herds. And he's left on a pile of broken pottery, scratching the boils on his skin, uh, you know, with, a, with one of the shards. Gosh, um, some days it's like chewing broken glass. And in this time of pandemic, I think a lot of people are feeling down and can probably identify with uh, what Job has to say. So here it is. Has not a man a hard surface, service upon earth? And not, are not his days like the days of a hireling, like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hireling who looks for his wages? So I'm allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night is long, and I'm full of tossing till dawn. And almost as an ironic aside, and life is as short as a breath. Oh, life is crummy, and the biggest problem is it's too short. You know, it's this weird, ironic way that human beings think about things uh, because there is such beauty in life. There's such vitality in us. Life is difficult, and it can be way too short, especially for the people we love the most. I mean, the images that Job gives us of Months of emptiness, nights of misery. Life is as a breath. So how does it connect with the gospel today? Because remember in the gospel today, Jesus goes to Simon Peter's house, heals his mother-in-law, and then when night comes, when the sun goes down, Sabbath is over, and the whole village empties into Peter's front yard. Uh, and Jesus drives out demons and demons, and he heals all sorts of people. You know, last week, if you remember, Jesus the exorcist uh, faced down this demon in the synagogue. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And remember, it was a, it was a reference back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, uh, about Adam and Eve and the curse on the serpent, and that Eve's child would crush the serpent's head while the serpent uh, struck at the child's foot. Well, right after casting out a demon, what does Jesus do? He goes and heals Peter's mother-in-law. And so clearly this turn of events is about Jesus conquering evil, Jesus conquering misery in our lives, even as in Peter's mother-in-law's case, it, it's a fever that she probably would have survived. 
but it points towards something. All of Jesus' signs do. That's why in the gospel they call them signs, not really miracles. Signs are about something that's to come. Jesus isn't just an, uh, an exorcist. He overcomes the miseries of life. And so we're going to concern ourselves a little bit with the healings. And then one part of the healings that I think is interesting, because this is Peter's family. It's the role that healings play in our family. So let's turn to the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to spend a little time talking about this particular healing in the Gospel of Mark and then kind of survey some of the other healings that Jesus uh, performs with an idea that they're pointing towards something about a marriage and family. You know, if you go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is the way that Catholics understand Scripture and tradition in, in the church, and specifically paragraph 1505, here's what it says. Moved by so much suffering, Christ not only allows himself to be touched by the sick, but he makes her miseries his own. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases, but he did not heal all the sick. His, ceilings were, his healings were signs of the coming of the kingdom of God. They announced a more radical healing, the victory over sin and death through his Passover. On the cross, Christ took upon himself the whole weight of evil and took away the sin of the world, of which illness is only a consequence. By his passion and death on the cross, Christ has given a new meaning to suffering and can henceforth configure us to him and unite us with his redemptive passion. And so Psalm 147 says, God heals the brokenhearted. Jesus is the healing face of God. And so Jesus heals Peter's wife? I mean, Peter's mother-in-law? Where's Peter's wife? This is the interesting part of the story because it is something about marriage. So Jesus casts out demons, but exorcism and healing are not the same thing in the Gospel of Mark. There's one instance where exorcism and healing is put together, but mostly they're separate in the Gospels. And so when Jesus comes in, it's a sign of how Jesus take, does healings. He reaches down, he takes the mother-in-law by the hand, and she gets up and immediately she starts serving them. Get out of bed and take care of us. But this is the point about um, this healing. Um, where is Peter's wife? Because really, it's the wife's duty to take care of guests in the house. You know, St. Jerome said in his Against Jovian that they thought that St. Peter was a uh, widower. Um, but, you know, it's a little more complicated than that. And I'm going to get into that in just a minute to think about Peter and his marriage. Because, you know, John the Baptist and Jesus and St. Paul were all, uh, and Barnabas were all famous, famously celibate. But here's the first pope. And is he married? Is he a widower? And so the, the sense of Jesus coming in and touching Peter's uh, family. But... There's something that runs through all of this, and it's at the root of the question, I think, about how to read the Gospel of Mark. Did you notice, and if you, when, if you listen to the Gospel or read the Gospel, in the first part of the Gospel today, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. 
Then it says, when the sun goes down, all these people come to him, and he does healings all night. Jesus is just working, working, working. And he's kicking demons out. He's dominating demons. But it says that he would not let the demons speak because they knew him. Well, this raises some interesting questions. And scripture scholars in the Gospel of Mark call it the messianic secret. It's very prominent in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus does not identify himself as the Messiah until his trial in front of the Sanhedrin. And scripture scholars who see the messianic secret as playing a role in Jesus's ministry says it's because people's expectations about what the Messiah was to be were so contrary or inadequate for who this Messiah is revealed to be in Jesus's cross and resurrection. And so to allow demons to speak about it might create false expectations in people. Do you remember in the temptation in the desert, the demon, the Satan, uh, is going to allow Jesus to have complete political control of the world if he'll uh, bow down and worship him. Well, that's something like the what the messianic hopes of Israel were. They're going to have a great war leader. Um, but obviously, that's not who Jesus was. So the demons knew him, or at least knew something about him. How much they know? Well, it doesn't appear that they have... Um, tremendous knowledge who Jesus is. Maybe they do. But did they know him, as one scripture scholar suggested, because uh, the demons pre-existed human beings just like God pre-exists demons. God's the creator of all um, living things. He has no beginning. He has no end. And so ancient fathers used to surmise that uh, the demons all recognized him because he was there on the day of their creation. And so they knew that he was, he was not them. Um, so who knows how you, how you can parse that out because Mark doesn't explain it. But what's clear there in Jesus' dominance of demons, his dominance of human sickness, it's Mark's statement about the divinity of Christ um, that Jesus is, as in Psalm 147, the face of God that heals the brokenhearted. And so what's it like for the Son of Man, the, uh, the Son of God, the Son of Man, to pray? Because it says that he would rise early in the morning, maybe when it was calm and people weren't bothering him, and he would pray. You know, when we think of prayer, we think of prayers of intercession. We're always praying for somebody. I know that comes um, so uh, easily to us because we have so many needs, especially in this period of time. But we just have a few little examples of Jesus's prayer. And it always starts out, I give praise to you, Father. It's a prayer of praise because God is love and praise is part of love. Um, and so that would be in a nutshell, kind of this story about uh, the healing that Jesus is the answer to Job because you remember in Job at the end Job's family marriage is restored and healed although his wife never dies but he gets new girls boys and uh, daughters and sons he gets more property it's as if at the end Job is once a man 
once more made complete. My scripture uh, uh, teacher, Dr. Bruce uh, Malco, who was a great guy, said he thought it was the irony. Maybe at the end, it was kind of a cynical statement that when you everything falls apart, God will give it back to you again because you're a just man before you die. But other scripture scholars saw it as something about what God was going to do for us in the next world. Not clear at all, because you you know for those who think the latter opinion, they're reading it through the gospel. But it does say something about how the gospel is um, written. And so before I talk about this question, what about Peter's wife? I want to tell you something about translations. I think everybody knows that the Old Testament is mostly in Hebrew. Some of the apocryphal books were probably drafted in Greek. Um, the Hebrew text was translated into Greek in the Septuagint, and that's mostly the version of the Old Testament relied on by the New Testament writers. You can tell because they're using, new, they're using Septuagint uh, translations. The Septuagint, by tradition, was uh, 70 scripture scholars writing 70 different versions of the Old Testament into Greek, and they all came up with the same translations. Well, that probably never happened. But the, clearly, the Old Testament has been translated into Greek, and the, the writers of the New Testament relied on it. But those translators have the same problem as modern translators taking the ancient Hebrew and the ancient Koine Greek and translating it into uh, the modern idiom. Because uh, it's just, it's a different world. People thought differently, and trying to get the sense of what the Greek meant can, uh, can kind of be challenging. I'm going to talk a minute about 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 to 6, which isn't, isn't in the reading, but it touches on the question of Peter's wife. And so you need to know this about Bible translations. There are two basic poles for Bible translation. One is old, ultimately absolutely literal. And everybody wants a literal translation. But the problem of Hebrew, which my Hebrew teacher, I took a semester or two of Hebrew, um, and some of it stuck. Uh, Father Pat Kramer, another great guy in my seminary back, background, he said the problem of Hebrew is it was kind of a baby language. And if you just did a literal translation of it, it would be close to gobbledygook in mo modern English because you have to do some interpretation to understand and to get it in the modern English. So a literal translation of Koine Greek, the language in which the New Testament and the books of the Apocrypha were written in, or ancient Hebrew, um, to translate those directly into a modern language, um, they would be indecipherable to us. And so the basic school of translation is called dynamic equivalent. Every translator is trying to give you the sense of it, of what they think it means, which means it's never literally the word order because Hebrew and Greek just have completely different word orders uh, than the modern language, than modern English does, or modern Spanish. Um, and so that's going to come across here in a little bit as you compare, um, as you compare, uh, translations, which I'm going to talk about a little bit when it comes to the issue of Peter's wife. So you remember the issue. Jesus heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law. 
His wife never appears anywhere in the gospel. If she was alive, she'd be there to take care of the home. Did she die? Did she abandon Peter? Um, None of us really knows. But it's talked about, it's touched on by St. Paul, who personally knew Peter. And it's in 1 Corinthians 9, chapters 1 to 6. And you can look that up in your own home Bible. Here's what it says. And Paul's trying to explain to the Corinthians how he is, he is so inexpensive for them. He's carrying, covering his own costs. He's not looking for anything from them because the insinuation the Corinthians are making is that he's just after some money. Because, uh, you know, we know that some people take advantage of the gospel. It's why Jesus is very hard. says, when you go to some place, stay in the first house, don't move around, eat what they give you. You know, be happy with what your wages are. This is the same issue Paul is dealing with because otherwise people just expect because the Lord says the uh, worker is worth his wage that you want to preach Jesus however you want and people are supposed to take care of you. Well, this is cuts both ways as it does, as you know, with modern even some of our modern evangelical uh, preachers uh, that become multimillionaires. It's that's disgraceful in my opinion as a priest, but you know, uh, we all bear our burdens. Well, anyway, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 6, if you haven't fetched your Bible by now. Am I not free, St. Paul says? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Although I may not be an apostle for others, he's being sarcastic, certainly I am for you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense against those who had passed judgment on me is this. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a Christian wife, as do the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? As you know, Cephas or Kephas is St. Peter. Or is it only myself and Barnabas who do not have the right not to work? Well, he's comparing himself to other famous apostles who are being cared for by the community. Well, here's the thing. Did you get this thing, this little thing in verse 5? Do we not have the right to take along a Christian wife, as do the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord, James, uh, you know, these, uh, what we think are cousins, and Kephas or Cephas? You can go to Amazon and for free, you can get an interlinear copy of the New Testament which has a pretty literal translation right above the line where the Greek is. Of course, you need to be able to read the Greek because it won't read it for you. Um, but the phrase wife, Christian wife, um, is, um, and sisters, is this phrase in the Greek, adelophen gunikai. Here's a more literal translation um, of that same phrase. Have we not power to carry about a woman, a sister, as well as the rest of the apostles and the brethren of the Lord and Kephas? So Adelphin Gunakai, Gunakai can mean both woman and wife. Um, Adelphine means sister. Adelphoi is brother. Adelphin is sister. So literally, Sister woman or sister wife. So, you know, when Jesus traveled around, 
There was a group of women who used to provide for Jesus and the apostles out of their own resources. Um, and they used to eat with Jesus. Jesus would teach them. They were disciples. But I, apparently they would take care of some of the needs of them all, you know, with food and all the kinds of things about keeping guys who were moving from town to town uh, equipped and fed if they didn't get invited out to a meal. Eldelfen Gunakai. So if you look at 1 Corinthians, it either could be translated that Kephas has a wife, which means she just wasn't there in Mark, or he has a woman that goes with him as a sister and fulfills the function of a wife in taking care of him. You know, probably the latter, probably as Jerome said, um, St. Peter was probably a widower. But it says something about how the ancient church thought about relationships amongst Christians, men and women. And you know, you could do a lot on how Paul talks about it, because I think last week uh, it was about, the last two weeks were Paul and marriage and anxiety, and if you're not married, don't get married, all this kind of, this kind of thing. But if you go back to the Gospel of Mark, and if you were just to read through it and look for healings, how many of them are healings in families? Well, obviously everybody has a family, but it's not everybody's dad uh, that goes out and looks for healings. Because Jesus' healings are really overwhelmingly directed at entire families. So first, Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35, you remember this. He's, he's teaching, and they say, your mothers and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. I think they're cousins because of the, the way Greek and family relationships worked in the first century. But really beside the point as to what this gospel's about. So Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? And then looking around at those seated in the circle, men and women together listening to him, which as you know, is very revolutionary for that, that time and place. And then Jesus says, here are my mother and my brothers. Forever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So for Jesus, family is built around family of God. But you know from the other Gospels, um, Mary does the will of God. And so he is not excluding her in this. But it's really not the end story about um, Jesus and marriage and healings. And so um, here's a really good one. In chapter 5, verse 21, Jairus, a synagogue official, comes. His daughter has died. And Jesus, please come to my house. And so Here's a devout Jew. Jesus is going with him because Jesus is sent to the Jews. Suddenly he says, someone touched me, St. Peter says, in this big crowd who could know. And sure enough, this woman at hemorrhage had just thought, if I touch the tassel on his cloak, I will be healed. And so you remember the story well, right? Um, huge crowd. And uh, Jesus turns to her and says, your daughter is healed. It's her daughter. Uh, is healed. And then he continues on to Jairus's house. And in Jairus's house, he walks in and they mock him because he says, she's asleep, she's not dead. And so she walk, he goes in, takes her hand and says, Talitha kum, little girl arise. And so he heals at a distance. He heals this mother and his daughter, he heals a Jewish man. His healings are directed towards the Jewish people. 
until you turn the page and you go to Mark 7. And suddenly it's a Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile, a non-Jew, the ancient enemies of the Jews. And if you remember in that story, uh, Jesus says, I don't give food from the table to the dogs. And the Syrophoenician woman, talking about her daughter possessed by a demon, says, but even the dogs get the crumbs from the table. And Jesus says, your faith is great. Your daughter is healed. And then you turn the page again to Mark 9. And he heals a boy, a, a, a man comes to him, and he talks about his son who is possessed by a demon and uh, has these convulsions. And this is usually the story that you get when people say, well, in those days, anything that starts in those days is always something, you, you want to know what the sources are. But in those days, linking the demonic and linking illness. And there is a truth in that. There is a truth in that. But clearly in Jesus' story so far, demonic possession and healing are not necessarily the same kind of thing in the first century mentality. There's obviously several examples in the Gospel of Mark. But you remember in the story in Mark chapter 9, um, the demon throws him into the fire and throws him into water to which the, the man, the father says, heal him if you can, because remember the disciples have tried to heal him. Uh, the disciples have tried to cast this demon out, but can't. And so the man says, heal him if you can. And here's Jesus' response. If you can, everything's possible to one who has faith. Then the boy's father cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. Shouting and throwing the boy into convulsions, the demon came out. And the boy became like a corpse, which caused many to say, he is dead, just like the little girl. But Jesus took him by the hand, raised him up, just like with Peter's mother-in-law, this intimate gesture in a family. Well, so the boy was healed. So always the disciples, because of the messianic secret, are asking, what the heck was going on there? Why couldn't we cast him out? And here's what Jesus said when he entered the house. His disciples asked him in private, why could we not drive it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind can only come out through prayer. And so think about in the reading for today how healing and prayer is, heal is connected together. And this whole question is about trust in God. And so here we are, and all these healings I've talked about, most of the healings in Gospel of Mark, are usually a parent asking for a child uh, or for a mother-in-law. Uh, and it goes back to... Jesus restoring uh, this connection between um, husband and wife. You know, in that last story, which was about the boy and healing and prayer, if you turn the page to chapter 10, uh, Mark chapter 10, immediately the, the parties that oppose Jesus come up and Jesus talks about marriage and divorce, right? And he talks about in the beginning, and he goes back to before the fall, which in a way completes the teaching from last week about how um, the disciples said, have you come to destroy us? Because Jesus is referring back to Genesis ten, uh, nine chapters later and saying, in the beginning it wasn't so, and this is why man and woman should not divorce. Then he immediately turns from this unity of male and female in marriage. 
and he turns and immediately blesses children. And he says, These, this is who the kingdom of God belongs to. You know, here at St. Mark's Parish, the kingdom of God belongs to the children in our parish. Our job is to try to live either as a celibate, like Peter, uh, apparently, Paul, Jesus, John the Baptist, or wisely as in married people, Priscilla and Aquila in uh, in um, uh, 1 Corinthians, a, a great married couple who uh, the center of their marriage was the love of Jesus. And so the idea of all of this healing is about prayer, it's about the connection in marriage. And you know, one thing I wanna alert you to is this is the National Marriage Week uh, when we focus on marriage and uh, think about healing in marriage. Because you know, marriage, like any relationship, can have resentments in it. Uh, it can have the sorrow that comes from loss. Loss can turn the husband and wife be like a wedge between them, whether it's something happens to the children or some other difficult thing, like with Job and his sons and daughters. But you know, reflecting on some of these stories about Jesus and healing, remembering that God heals the brokenhearted and the healing face of God is Jesus. So when Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? He doesn't talk about his father because he has one father and that's his father in heaven. And it's those who hear God's word spoken into the world and God's word spoken into the world is Jesus. And it is, he is the source of healing. The importance of going to mass together and praying together and praising God even when uh, you're in the midst of loss. You know, in the book of Job, <laughs> Moses is, uh, Job's wife says to him, why don't you just curse God and die? Um, you know, come on, honey, <laughs> help me out. You're supposed to affirm me. How important it is to support each other in marriage. So I would like to bring this all to a close. And so what's the takeaway here? How does God interact in our families? Well, Jesus tells us in chapter 3 of Mark, um, God is in our families when we hear the word of God and keep it. And so Jesus, at the heart of Jesus' relationship in the, in the Trinity is prayer. He rises every day and he prays. Uh, and so to follow Jesus in our family is to pray as a family. And then just think about all of the healings in Mark's gospel. Uh, he heals Jews. He heals uh, Gentiles. He Remember, he healed Jairus and then the Syrophoenician woman who wasn't a, a Jew. He calls us to be faithful. Remember chapter 10 of Mark uh, against divorce. And all of this is to be a blessing on children. Where Adam and Eve's kids, Cain and Abel, did not turn out so great. That did not turn out so great. That... In a life of prayer, children will be blessed. And so family prayer. Father Peyton said, the family that prays together stays together. The family that prays together participates in the loving economy of the Trinity. And so keep evil away from your door. Promote healing, especially in the soul and how you feel about each other. And at the heart of it is the family. Here's a couple of things. 
First, maybe check out the marriage page on the New Outlook online and listen to the podcast from Armida Escarrega and Jeff and Mary Hodges about natural family planning. Um, It may or may not have a great impact on your family, but you're going to hear a different view of how uh, happy marriages work. And then the second thing is consider in your home uh, Dr. Tim Gray's Bible study on the Gospel of Mark, which is free because you're a St. Mark parishioner, and uh, just plan on Lent that what you're going to do is you're going to go through the Gospel of Mark with Father Tim Gray because as soon as Easter is over, we're right back into the Gospel of Mark. So God bless you. God keep you safe. Until next time.